90% of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Doing pretty good. How about yourself? I'm stuffy. (laughs) I am too. Okay, I'm just trying to, obviously I'm better at being sick than you, I guess, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> here I am all lying about how I feel. Yeah, me too. I don't know if it's the wind or or what. I also am very, very stuffy. But uh, I would like to say we're going to get rain this week, but I don't think we are. So Yeah. <laughs> and then the, the winter forecast for La Nina type conditions came out, which is very bad for us. Right. Warm and dry and not fun. So... That stinks. Everybody thinks a warm, dry winter is good, but uh, winter droughts are no joke. Uh, yeah, especially when everything around you can get set on fire. <laughs> so, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that's not good. So that was a little bit of a bummer of a mesonet ticker today. Thanks, Gary. <laughs> I mean, he did soften the blow with some jokes, as always. As always, but still. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that's a. Uh, that's about it. That's how it's going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So Just... no, we're we're running like crazy here. We're trying to get ready for winter. We've got some winter weather instruments that we're getting prototyped and ready to go into the field. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah, and uh, it's coming up on Antarctic deployment season, so a lot of <sighs> our customers and instruments are already on their way. Oh, that's so scary. <laughs> It is pretty cool, though. I've got a dashboard right now. There's nothing deployed yet, except for one test instrument that they left back here in the States deployed. Oh. Um, mm -hmm. But as they're working, I'll be able to see instruments start popping up on our satellite data dashboard. That's fun. Oh, man. Everything you can do to get there. So sad. You're just sitting there watching them online. (laughs) Yep. Now I have to stare at a screen in our office all day that has that information on it because we're supposed to monitor the data feed. Oh, man. Well, that's still fun. You can just pretend like you're there. <laughs> if nothing else, I'm going to try to like, you know, I need to qualify on whatever type of plane and just go down as a pilot. <laughs> <laughs> man, I'll go with you. That, yeah, I would love to go to Antarctica. So, and then we wouldn't have to stay the whole field season, you know. <laughs> that's true. I'd get to just, you get to see all kinds of places and not have to do the... Exactly. Any of the work? No, I just, yeah, I just show up. That'd be fantastic. Stay in a heated plane and exactly pick up some people out, pick up some meteorites on the way, and then yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, well, why I contemplate that career change? Okay, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's time to actually talk about something. That's the opposite of this. Exactly. Uh, It's it's not cold at all. Not cold at all. (laughs) So this is crazy. I would have thought we would have already talked about this several times, but I guess we haven't. Um, I want to take us back to a time in Earth's past climate that is still in the Cenozoic, but it's the hottest we've been since the Cretaceous. And I'm talking about the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum. Or the P-E-T-M, which I know we've said that word on here before. I know. <laughs> so maybe we did an episode about this, but there's 
none of those words in it when I searched through it, because we've done enough episodes now that when I have an idea, I have to go back and search through our archives, right? Which I assume you do as well. Yep. I did the same search. I found no evidence. Mm -hmm. Nope. Uh, So I think we've maybe mentioned it, but haven't gone in depth before. I guess so. And I mean, it's not like we're going to go into major depth now, but (laughs) so this is an important time period when we talk about climate, because it is like the hottest that we've been since the Cretaceous. It's the hottest part of the Cenozoic. And so as we come out of the Mesozoic into the Cenozoic, in general, Earth's climate starts to cool down. All right. We glaciated Antarctica about like 35, 33 million years ago. And we've been in that ice age ever since. But during the Eocene, we, I don't want to say enjoyed, but (laughs) the climate was much, much warmer. Um, So there's a part of the Eocene called the Eocene Optimum. But right before that, at the Paleocene-Eocene boundary, uh, this thing happened. And there was this huge spike in temperature and CO2. And it didn't last very long, um, tens of thousands of years. But it was very rapid, and it was, well, it lasted about 170,000 years. But it was very rapid. And so when we talk about, like, CO2 and how it relates to climate, the rapidity of how our CO2 is increasing now is the problem, like the rate. Because in the past, it would raise, you know, relatively at low rates, but Now it's raising at a high rate. So that's the big deal about climate change is that CO2 is going up super, super fast. And the only thing in Earth's history that we know about so far that went up super, super fast in terms of CO2 and warming was this PETM event. Right. And we're still talking about fast in geologic time, not fast in like hundreds of years time. Yes. Which is what's occurring now. (laughs) Right. Exactly. So, So, you know, if you hear somebody say, well, the CO2 levels have been higher before, well, they certainly have. Yes. Um, They got there much more slowly, and there was a lot less life. Yes, correct. Most importantly, there was no human life. Right. So that's what it is. You know, when we talk about climate change in general, and I almost said it's a hot topic. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, people, climate deniers and all this jazz. But the deal is, like, the Earth's going to survive. We're not going to kill the Earth. That's ridiculous. But we are going to kill us. <laughs> like that's that's what the deal about climate change is, right? Is that you know the Earth's going to go on no matter what we do to it, but we may not because we as humans grew up in the during an ice age, right? So it's like we evolved during a cold Earth. So now that the Earth's getting warmer, what's going to happen? So when we look back now, so we can look back at the Cretaceous, which is when. CO2 was the highest. I know we've talked about that on here before, like very, very high. And it was really warm. But humans weren't around then. And humans weren't around during the PETM. But that wasn't very long ago. It was still in the Cenozoic, right? Um, right. 55 million years ago. <laughs> wasn't very long ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was Geology is a great science. It is. <laughs> but it was just this, you know, short, warm interval And we have a lot of geologic evidence for this happening. But as usual with these things that we talk about, we still don't know why. Right. And uh, also as usual, 
at least with climate things. Uh, it's backed up by geochemistry, uh, our favorite. Yay. <laughs> right. So um, there's a professor out there that has this, the O18, so the oxygen 18, that's an isotope of oxygen, which the is usually 16, right? So we look at O18 to determine temperature. So temperature of water that was going on, therefore relating it to temperature of climate because little shells and stuff take in oxygen to build their, or little animals take in oxygen to build their shells. And so we know a lot about sea temperatures based on these O18 records. And the O18 graph for the Cenozoic I know a professor that has this tattooed on her arm and it's the coolest thing ever. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) I know. I mean, and that's some trust, right? Like science changes. (laughs) You're going to get a graph tattooed on your arm. (laughs) But she said she uses it in (laughs) class all the time. (laughs) Now, you know, if there's not a citation under it, (laughs) plagiarism. Plagiarism. (laughs) That's amazing. Um, so this graph, like I use this in my class constantly, but this is one of those graphs where you can look at the change in 018 and you can basically directly relate it to temperature. And so what we look at when we look at these Del 018 numbers is you can look at organisms that are benthic, which means they live on the bottom of the ocean. And they make little shells down there. Therefore, the temperature of the water will be reflected in those oxygen-18 isotopes. And you can look at things that are planktonic that live up near the top of the water column. And so you can tell the difference between sea surface temperatures, essentially, and bottom temperatures. And we do this. Yeah, we do this a lot throughout all of geologic time. Because in order to get an ocean that circulates... Today, you know, we have cold, dense water at the bottom and warmer water at the top. And that thermohaline circulation is what drives the oceans moving and therefore the climate, right? So if you don't have... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. I was going to say exactly. You know, that's transferring energy is necessary. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to happen one way or the other. (laughs) <laughs> um, and yeah, yes. the thermohaline cycle has been set up for a very long time now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Which it takes basically a molecule of water a thousand years to make it all the way back around the thermohaline circulation. Just a fun fact toyed there. <laughs> Which is less time than I would have expected. Uh, yeah, um, I think it's less time than I would have expected as well. So... When you change those temperatures, so you don't have like as big of a gradient between the sea surface and the sea bottom, like lots of weird stuff can start to happen. And so when you look at the PETM, one of the ways that we identified it was by looking at these Del 018 values. And it said that the seafloor temperatures went up by estimates four to eight degrees Celsius. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a ton. I mean, a couple <laughs> degrees is a big deal in sea temperature. Yes, exactly. And now we're not talking. We're not talking about sea surface temperature. We're talking about the bottom temperatures. That's crazy. Eight degrees Celsius on the bottom because we've talked about you know thermal inertial differences between water and land before, right? It takes a lot to heat up the ocean. 
And so eight degrees Celsius on the bottom, crazy. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's outrageous. And you say, well, okay, you still say a couple degrees is a big deal, but that's a little alarmist. No, it's not. No. (laughs) I mean, a couple (laughs) degrees, especially at the bottom, like you said, that is ice cap melting. Well, there weren't any at this point, but Mm -hmm. that is life changing for all of the organisms in the ocean, which happened to also be the main consumer of that CO2 that's driving this. Yes, exactly. And you said there weren't ice caps melting, but there may be something else that melted because of this, which we'll get to later. So (laughs) we had that large sea surface, or um, well, sea surface too, but sea floor temperature spike that we recorded. And we also record this in a negative excursion of C13 isotopes. Now I'm going to I'm not going to get into this a huge way. We need to have an expert come to talk to us about this. But (laughs) the only thing I'm going to say (laughs) is that it's not just this one indicator that the PETM happened, right? There are lots of indicators that we had this several tens of thousands of years warming period, right? And that 8 degrees C, just like you said, John, I mean, 8 degrees C is enough for you to change the clothes you're wearing, right? That's a big enough difference. Um, but eight degrees C, climatically speaking, is enough to kill things. <laughs> lots of things. Oh, yeah. Lots and <laughs> lots of things. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we had a huge die-off of a lot of things that lived on the on the ocean bottom. And also a big turnover of the mammals that lived on the on the land. So this hit not just sea creatures, which a lot of ocean or a lot of our extinction events hit, but it hit stuff on the land too, which changes, you know, how we came about because this was before us as well. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's yeah. this big excursion. We can measure it in lots of ways. It's killing off lots of things, but you said we don't know what caused it, which stuns me because <laughs> we've also said it's a huge deal and it's recent. <laughs> I know. It's so funny. This is is how every climate class that we talk goes. It's like, yep, don't know. Good luck. Um, We always have a lot of people do reports on the PETM because it is so interesting about what happened. So how can you raise CO2 quickly? So like in Earth's past, how we raise CO2 in general, and this is if you're into climate science, it's like the Blag hypothesis basically, is that if you have a lot of volcanism, you're raising CO2. Like, right. that's, <laughs> it all comes back down to plate tectonics, right? Um, so we said that volcanoes are a good guess for any answer you don't know yes. on a geology test. <laughs> that's exactly right. Because <laughs> at first they cool down the earth, so it's the answer to that. And then over the long period, they, they um, heated up. Um, so where can you make a lot of volcanoes? Well, see our billions of shows. We've talked about plate tectonics, right? So if you have fast seafloor spreading, you can, you got a lot of volcanism going on and you're a lot of CO2 release, not just into the atmosphere, but under the water. Cause that's where mid ocean ridges are. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. Increase seafloor spreading that also increases subduction. And when you're subducting, rocks you're generally subducting carbonate rocks that are in the bottom of the ocean that stuff gets melted and that co2 from the carbonate rocks gets released in the volcanoes that are along those subduction zone margins right so cooling volcanoes warming volcanoes 
Uh Critical part of the CO2 cycle, volcanoes. Volcanoes. Critical (laughs) part of the water cycle, volcanoes. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, because water vapor is the most abundant gas that comes out of volcanoes. Yep. And it is the worst greenhouse gas. Yes, exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Uh So, yeah, volcanoes, volcanoes, volcanoes. Uh, Also, if you don't want to talk about volcanoes there, you can talk about volcanoes in terms of large igneous provinces, which surely we've talked about on here before. (laughs) I know we have said those words once again. Mm -hmm. Yes, because they're abbreviated lips, and that's very funny. Uh, (laughs) So while not directly related to plate tectonic processes like we usually think, those are formed by like mantle plumes, hot spots, whatever you want, that are still a part of plate tectonics where you're spewing out, you know, tons of flood basalts over a large area. So that could have been it. Again, also volcanoes. (laughs) Also volcanoes. Um, Then there are a couple of causes. One of them, obviously something that I like, and one of them something that you like. (laughs) (laughs) Um, methane hydrates yeah Mm -hmm. Uh, right (laughs) though unfortunately this is pretty much not really an accepted explanation anymore um people keep coming back to it though i mean they can't give it up (laughs) yeah so the the hypothesis called the clathrate gun hypothesis uh-huh. Yeah, and this is your melting thing. So I know you love clathrates. You go ahead. <laughs> yeah, have we talked about clathrate extensively on here before? I think so. I don't know if we've had just a clathrate show, but I know we've mm. talked about it before. Because yeah, we've talked so, about your research experience before. So Fair. Yeah. Yeah. So clathrate is gas trapped in ice, basically. It makes a new material. You made and, that sound so boring, and clathrates are the coolest thing ever. <laughs> well, just wait a second. Okay, so, okay. <laughs> one of the gases that you can trap is methane. So you make these kind of soccer ball-looking cages of water molecules around methane, and you get this not-dense ice that you can light on fire. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> now, the interesting thing about clathrates is their energy of formation and dissolution. Okay. Right. So we have to do a lot of work <laughs> to make clathrate. <laughs> you know, you put some gas in over some water and then you start freezing it. But then there's this big temperature buffer that happens. All right. So the formation is exothermic. Okay. The dissolution is endothermic, but once you start, it's a process that after you get past that buffer point, it's all going to go. Right. Okay. So so how do you... mm -hmm. We had a lot of clathrates (laughs) in the bottom of the ocean, we think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Clathrates are, you know, out in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico right now. Yeah, I was going to say, we still have these today. This was not just then. They, they played a big role in the Deepwater Horizon incident. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the idea is you warm the sea bottom temperature enough, which Shannon just told us we did, you're going to melt these clathrates. You're going to dissolve them. And all of that methane, all that greenhouse gas is going to get released into the air and create a positive feedback loop. More energy 
coming into the ocean, more warming, more clathrate melting, more greenhouse gas getting released over and over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's terrible. Yes. <laughs> it <laughs> The numbers, I hate showing numbers for this because it doesn't even – it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How many gigatons? Or <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's like two thousand gigatons of carbon in the form of methane is what would have had to have been released to explain the PETM. Yeah. So two thousand billion tons of methane. That means nothing to anyone. No. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like that word. Yeah. It means nothing. But the point is, how do you? I mean, the warming came first, warming enough at least to melt the clathrates. But how? Was it a combo? This is... Right. I highly... If you haven't seen this, I you have to go and look up methane clathrates because it's always a picture of some person holding a piece of it on fire. Right. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so- it's super, super cool. It is. And, you know, you can make it at home if you have a small, low temperature, high pressure geochemical reactor. (laughs) As you do. (laughs) (laughs) Just saying. um. (laughs) Uh, Push your glasses a little further up your nose there. Okay. Um. (laughs) The proper safety procedures and tank of methane. You know, yeah. Um, now, now, these are really important. Like, clathrates are not just important to the PETM. They're important now because, like, they could be a major energy source, right? And also a significant hazard. Um, not just because, like you said, the the New Horizons incident. But if you have large earthquakes that create landslides, you can also release all this methane, right? So... That's not good either because they're everywhere. Right. Uh-huh. And the so some estimates of how much methane we have now. These clathrates are also in permafrost. There's a lot of methane in permafrost. So as we're melting the permafrost, we're also releasing methane. So that's not good either. So we have both this oceanic and continental gas hydrate reserve. And again, these numbers don't even make sense, but they're significantly higher, the methane hydrates, significantly higher gas in those as opposed to conventional gas resources that we have in the world today. Oh yeah. And it's not just methane. Clathrates can lock away CO2. They can lock away other gases and they're very important in the solar system. Go back and listen to our solar system show and hear about gas and geyser volcanoes Mm -hmm. that are driven by clathrate driven by clathrate so that's the weirdest and coolest thing (laughs) basically that would explain it (laughs) now there's one that you like i'm sure that (sighs) could also be coupled yes clathrate exactly so in order to melt the clathrates that are at the bottom of the ocean you're going to have to do something like to get it going. So it's like, maybe, maybe there was a big meteorite impact that hit into these clathrates to release them. Maybe that's what happened. Because another way you can destabilize clathrate 
is to well, reduce the pressure. Yeah. Class rate is only stable in certain <laughs> pressure temperature range. So yeah, if you hit it with a big rock that's going to heat it because it's going to vaporize everything within <laughs> kilometers. Yes. Um, uh-huh. So it's going to provide a lot of heat to the system. It's going to provide a lot of relief of overburden pressure. And right. it's going to provide mechanical agitation. That's a recipe to start dissolving hydrate that warms the climate that then dissolves more hydrate where there wasn't an impact. Right. And I mean, the PTM is marked by this rapid increase. And so that's why we look for these catastrophic, essentially, explanations for this. Because there's been volcanoes forever, but we haven't recorded or found in the deep rock record, which I will admit, maybe these excursions happened before and we just haven't seen them in the deep rock record. But it something bad happened very quickly. <laughs> And it seems like impact is always a great explanation for that. <laughs> well, I mean, can you think of a more high energy acute event? No, no, yeah. <laughs> you can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm sure I could pull out my, you know, an impactor the size of the town of Norman is how many megatons of TNT. I got that number, but it also is so large. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> So. Well, I mean, you, you look at, you know, Meteor Crater and you think, okay, something about the size of a washing machine did this. Yeah. Like, whoa. And uh, when you stand, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you say, like, when you're looking at meteorite literature and you're like, oh, that's cute. It's a kilometer across. That's nothing. But then you go to Meteor Crater and you're like, this is huge. <laughs> uh-huh. If something yeah. the size of a washing machine hit your house, you'd think it's <laughs> it's a big deal. It uh-huh, hit your town. Yeah, your yeah you're I was going to say, yeah, your neighborhood is gone, period. If not, lots of your town is gone um, by a washing machine hitting you. So <laughs> so that seems to be that combo. I like that combo. But what do we want to look for to prove that is we want to look for the crater. And we haven't found a crater that matches that time period. Yeah. So doesn't mean it's not there. It doesn't mean it's not there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So it doesn't mean it's not there. Um, so that's kind of hard to. That's also to not do. a scientific proof of what you can't prove it wasn't. <laughs> so many students have tried on test <laughs> to use that. <laughs> um I will say that people still like this clathrate thing, though, and it has to do with the thing that we're not going to talk about because we're not qualified. Because of this carbon isotope excursion, this very negative uh, del C13 signature that we see in sediments from this time, it's really hard to get a very negative signature like that. And methane provides that very negative signature. So that's why we still like it. But the deal is like, yeah, how did you get them all to release at one time? So I want to throw that in because it sort of supports the combo of impact and clath rate. And so I wonder too, you know, if you're hitting an impactor in deep enough water, these things, like you said, John, are pretty unstable. So maybe it wouldn't... Hmm. Which is, you know, maybe it wouldn't create that big of a crater if the water was deep enough, but it would still be enough 
energy to, you know, change the, the pressure regime or just to disturb the sediment enough to release large amounts of methane. I don't know. And it's one of those things where the, the clathrate gun was, was cocked and is in some ways now. Yes, exactly. But (laughs) who pulled the trigger and we just don't know. Uh huh. And that's why at least, I mean, I haven't been active in clathrate research in a long time. Um, but when I was, the hypothesis was sort of falling out of favor because nobody was able to find that explanation. Yeah. But it it's, sounds like it's, it's coming back because, it well, is. what else? It, exactly. It exactly. So it is coming back because of that. Um, and yeah, it. what else could you do? Um, this carbon part that we're not getting into, but I keep coming back to, <laughs> is also, so like, how do you get that much? you know, organic carbon, because this negative excursion, organic carbon to the atmosphere, somebody has said you could burn a lot of peat, which I think is really funny. (laughs) Because what would you have to do (laughs) to just burn like all the peat, right? Like, (laughs) that could have been an impact too, that just sets all the peat on fire. (laughs) Exactly, like exactly right there. (laughs) Um, Because it's weird that you would yeah, that you would do that. <laughs> Isolate peat burning in time and space like that. Um, yeah, so that's it. And volcanoes, as always, could be it. Uh, a change in the biosphere. Because of this weird carbon excursion, maybe a change in the biosphere caused this, but this is hard too, because it got so warm so fast, lots of things went extinct and lots of animals adapted, you know, try to adapt. And so it's hard to tell which came first, which is very often the case in, you know, science. Um, Because you had to have, the climate had to get generally warmer in the first place, right? Yeah. And I don't like this because... Changing the biosphere, sure, like all the right feedbacks are there, but it's not fast. It's not a spike. Yeah. It's slow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <sighs> so this is really hard. <laughs> this is really hard. So to, so to recap this, you know, um, we did have a large igneous province, the North Atlantic igneous province, that started to erupt slightly before the spike in the Delo 18 numbers and the negative carbon excursion about 60 million years ago. Okay, great. So we got that. So generally you could get the climate getting warmer there because of that climatic shift and the ocean circulations would change because of the sea surface temperature going up. You start to warm up your bottom waters because you're not having this turnover in the thermohaline circulation. And as soon as you do that, you can start to release these methane clathrates. So either a general climate warming because of volcanoes or this impactor hitting, whatever that is, maybe you release all these methane clathrates. All right. Um, Strong positive feedback, super fast increase in temperature, right? super large release of organic carbon. Okay. Uh, Yeah. You release all that methane into the atmosphere. 
you get the oxidation of methane to CO2. Either way, they're both really strong greenhouse gases. Huge increase. Because you're increasing the temperature, you cause more evaporation. Okay, cool. More evaporation means you're priming the water cycle. You have more coastal runoff. More nutrients go into the ocean. When you have all this more nutrients going into the ocean, you increase biological productivity, which is great because now you're going to start removing the CO2 from the atmosphere because all those little things that live in the surface areas of the ocean are photosynthetic and they're going to take in that CO2, release oxygen, and start to cool off the atmosphere. So, okay, great. So we turn ourselves off. So we've got this heat spike. And then this cooling off period that took much longer than that. Because after the PETM, you actually warm back up again to this Eocene maximum. But that's a warm up that we're used to seeing. It's gradually, a gradual warm up. Yeah, gradually spread out over millions of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we've got this massive spike that is still unexplained. And it's recent. And it also shows that this little excursion though it was a blip in the geologic timeline, affected things for millions of years afterwards. We had all kinds of effects of acidification, the deep ocean, um, anoxia. We had climatic changes about precipitation on the globe, those biological biome changes. Uh, it, It heavily modified flora, fauna, and the earth for millions of years. Yeah, exactly. And, you know pave the way for us to make it on the scene too. You know, I don't know if this would have changed what had happened, but it definitely did because of those biotic changes. So a biotic explanation probably isn't, you know, the reason for the PETM, but the outcomes of those things migrating in response to climate habitat changes is a big deal for us because we were on the scene not long after this. Yeah. Yeah. So, and now the big question is, can we learn anything from it in terms of what we're about to do in terms of a sudden excursion? And it says, well, maybe because there are tipping points where the system becomes unstable and is irrecoverable. Mm -hmm. Right, exactly. And, you know, some people could point to this and say, oh, well, you know, we recovered from this, though. We came out of the PETM. Even with this us emphasizing how fast this happened, the rate of warming the PETM was still magnitudes less than our rate of warming that is occurring now. And yeah, we came out of it, but a couple hundred thousand years later with yeah. almost unrecognizable <laughs> yes. life left. Yeah, exactly. So the earth came out of it, but you and I won't. Yeah, exactly. So this is why it's important to understand these things and maybe, you know, mitigate. And this whole thing about increasing productivity in the ocean to draw down CO2, that is a geoengineering thing that's happening now. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's a very interesting excursion, literally, <laughs> in, in geologic history. And like I said, it's the fastest one we know of. But I often think about this and think, you know, how many other of these events that are on the less than million year time scale do we just not have we just haven't found the resolution in the deep rock record for or the rocks just don't exist anymore 
Or that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. So it's not saying that this is the only time this happened, but it is the closest thing to our sort of anthropological increase of CO2 that we know about. So that's why it's important. And it also makes you wonder, does this happen on any other world to any other civilization? Hmm. Interesting. And how would that affect the people on that world? Can we still meet each other? (laughs) Sounds like it's time for everybody's favorite segment of the show. Fun Paper Friday. Yeah. We got to get a better ring than that. Yeah. There we go. Much better. Much better. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Um, I am shocked we haven't done this paper before. I have seen this paper and I totally forgot about it. I know. Um, And I also came across it again and it took me a little way to find it. Um, (laughs) Why I Don't Have a Girlfriend, An Application of the Drake Equation to Love in the UK by Peter Backus. (laughs) Yes. And so the Drake Equation (laughs) is this equation that Frank Drake came up with back in the 60s. And it is a way to very crudely estimate how many highly evolved communicating civilizations might exist in the galaxy. Not in the universe, in just in the galaxy. This it's got so... all these coefficients that look really official. <laughs> but it's just proof that, you know, you can do anything with math. Um, yeah. You just have to come up with enough order of magnitude constants multiplied together. And as long as the units work out in the end, you can publish it. <laughs> and it did, right? So the probability of a star chosen at random supporting life capable of interstellar communication winds up being point one, two, three, <laughs> 3.3 to the minus eight. Yeah. So that would mean in the Milky Way, there are potentially 10,000 communicative civilizations. See? When you say 3.33 to the minus 8, that doesn't sound great. But when you say 10,000 in the Milky Way, that seems like a lot. It does. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. You yeah. know, there there is a chance. <laughs> you're saying there's a chance, yeah? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep, exactly. So you're saying there's a chance. Um, and this author decided, well, if the Drake equation can be applied to something that grand with, you know, bore problem like guesses to the <laughs> coefficients. I wonder why I'm still single. <laughs> so he redefines the seven parameters of the Drake equation, <laughs> which we'll go over because this is great with, you know, the obvious one being what's his number of potential girlfriends, right? <laughs> And I love it because he says, you could easily substitute boyfriends in here, but he's a mostly heterosexual male. So he's doing it for girlfriends. (laughs) Exactly. And the first parameter in this equation to solve for G, the number of potential girlfriends, is the rate of formation of people in the UK. (laughs) That's a great way to say population growth. (laughs) Exactly. Uh, that's awesome. So 150,000 per year over the last 60 years. Great. All right. <laughs> F sub W, fraction of people in the UK who are women. That's actually a pretty easy number to get. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 0.51. All right. Great. Um, fraction of women in the UK who live in London because he says he would like his girlfriend to be nearby so they can see each other. 
And it saves right. him <laughs> the difficulties of a long-distance relationship and train fare. And train fare. <laughs> okay, point one three. <laughs> and then, <laughs> this is hilarious. The fraction of women in London who are age-appropriate. <laughs> so he says he's 31, and he couldn't keep up with a 20-year-old because he hasn't read Twilight, and he doesn't know who the Jonas Brothers are. <laughs> Nor does he want to fall prey to a voracious cougar to be regaled with stories of the war. <laughs> I died laughing when I read that sentence. Oh my gosh, I love it! And uh, closer, slump closer to the cougar than the twenty-year-old. That's pretty hilarious. Um, so he's looking for a woman between twenty-four and thirty-four years of age. Point two zero. And then the fraction of age-appropriate women in London with a university education. <laughs> so I love this because, yeah, he says he's not trying to be elitist, which obviously this sounds like. But he says he wants to discuss his work with somebody. And he says, don't get all righteously indignant. <laughs> Everyone has preferences. <laughs> How many women out there have dated men shorter than themselves? I rest my case. Uh, as he uh, says uh, in the paper. So this winds up being 0.26. All right. So one out of every four age-appropriate women in London has a university education. Okay. Great. <laughs> Next. Now. Fraction of university-educated <laughs> age-appropriate women in London who I find physically attractive. <laughs> so he points out, obviously, you know, that's important, right? Um, and it's only important to him. It doesn't have, the girlfriend doesn't have to be considered attractive by anyone else. <laughs> so this is a hilarious parameter because I don't I felt like he estimated kind of low, but maybe I'm just more. <laughs> That's what I thought too, because he said, let's be generous. Let's say yes. I find one in twenty age appropriate women in London with universally ed university education physically attractive one in 20 kidding me dude right one in 20 I'm gonna tell you right now that's why you don't have a girlfriend exactly <laughs> so that's a ridiculous you know 0. 0.05 <laughs> so ridiculous <laughs> Um, so he's got to follow this up by the length of time in years he's been alive, thus making an encounter with a potential girlfriend possible. Right. And he says, good Lord, I'm old 31. <laughs> yeah. Because you could have already met this person. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Yep. So he, so he finally gets a number for G. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Um, 10,510 people in the UK that satisfy these basic criteria for being his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. All right. right. So 0.0014% of Londoners. Again, that doesn't sound like much, but it's 10,510 people. Right. Exactly. So it goes on. On any given night where he goes out, a greater than one in a thousand chance he'll meet all of his requirements. Right. But... It doesn't take into the account the amount of women who find him attractive. <laughs> which he which says he is depressingly low. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the fraction of this woman who will be single, which I thought was an interesting one that needs to go in there, right? Falls and it's off falling with age. with age. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And <laughs> again, this is why you don't have a girlfriend. More importantly, the fraction of those women who I will get along with. <laughs> All right. So he assumes one in 20 women will find him attractive. Mm -hmm. Great. Yeah. I'll say that's Half a 
sure, that's that's a that seems like a reasonable number to me. <laughs> yeah, I yes. <laughs> Half of them are single. Okay. Cool. And then he says and he gets along with one in ten of those. Yes. <laughs> Again, maybe this is why you're single. And that puts the number at 26. <laughs> so out of all of London, there are 26 women with whom he could see himself in a relationship with. A point zero 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 three four percent chance of meeting someone special. Which he says is actually a hundred times better than finding an alien civilization that we can talk to. Yeah. So, I yeah. mean, it's mm-hmm. not zero. <laughs> You're saying there's a chance. Um, so, I found this because I found a follow-up article about this guy getting married. <laughs> I was going to, I was wondering if he did. Yes. <laughs> so, he is. Happily married now. He clearly found one of those 26 women. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hilarious. I love this stuff. And also, he was interviewed by a lot of, like, worldwide press for this. So, you have a dorky idea, put it out there. You could be famous. (laughs) I mean, that probably greatly increased his uh, search radius. Exactly. How aware of him potential Mm -hmm. girlfriends were. Yeah, how many people found him attractive? Yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So it worked. <laughs> so the moral of the story is if you want to have a partner, you should publish an impactful paper. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that opinion is shared by our funding agencies. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, good times. Well, if you have calculated your chance at, well, roughly anything using the Drake equation. (laughs) We would love to hear the result of that. Shannon, how can folks send that in? Show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. You can tweet us at don'tpanicgeo. I'm at Shannon Doolin. John is at geo underscore Lehman. You can hang out with us in the Slack chat room. We're on the Don't Panic channel, the software underground. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Um, If you would like to support us on Patreon and keep us going, you may do so. Patreon.com slash don'tpanicgeo. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies. 